Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent here at Renegade Realty Group with Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly right here in Southeast Michigan. Right now we're meeting at Shields at 10 Mile and Telegraph. And this group's about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Also, RDI is this podcast where we continue the real estate conversation, hopefully, just like you're a fly on the wall. And if you're ever interested in attending any of the local meetups or if you travel, you're going to be here, go to renegadedetroit.com or meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Legal disclaimer. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't sue me or sue anybody else. All right. Time for the Renegade Short Investors Show Quote of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And this week's quote is, perfect is the enemy of good, Voltaire. Perfect is the enemy of good. And this week, no guess. It's just me. We're going to finish this millionaire real estate investor if it kills me. So we're moving on to part three. So go ahead and pull out your millionaire real estate investor book by Gary Keller and go ahead and open up to page 123 if you are doing the read along. Okay. Doing the read along. We're starting right here. Let me put my phone. There we go. My phone's on airplane mode. Page 123. Buy a million. Under all is the land. Upon its wise utilization and widely allocated ownership depend the survival and growth of free institutions and our civilization. From the preamble of the National Association of Realtors Code of Ethics. America's first millionaire. It is a little known fact that America's first millionaire was a real estate investor, a German immigrant and the son of a butcher. He was named John Jacob Astor. In the early 1800s, Astor got rich trading in furs, tea, silk, and fine china. But that is not where his real fortune was made. Eventually, he invested his trading profits in something that would prove to be even better, real estate. His most profitable investments were in New York City, and before long, the man known as Manhattan's landlord was widely acknowledged as the wealthiest person of his time. He had not only become America's first millionaire, he was now its first multi-millionaire. Shortly before his death, Astor repeat, reportedly said, Could I begin life again knowing what I know now and had money to invest, I'd buy every foot of land on the island of Manhattan. Astor passed away in 1848, leaving over $20 million to his heirs. $20 million in 2005 dollars would be about $458 billion. Who knows what it would be in today's dollars. The immigrant butcher's son not only was America's first millionaire and multimillionaire, he was also America's first multi or millionaire real estate investor. I love the story of John Jacob Astor because it captures both the art and the science of investing. The art inspires us and the science instructs us. The fact that an immigrant butcher's son could build America's first great fortune is the inspiration. The fact that he did it through real estate is the instruction. This is consistent with my experience. I believe there is an art and science to achieving your highest potential in any endeavor or and building 
Financial wealth is no exception. The art of real estate investing is about becoming inspired to overcome your myth understandings and think like a millionaire real estate investor. The science is about learning and applying the models these successful investors use. Up to this point, we've addressed the art. Now is the time to address the science, the five models of the millionaire real estate investor. Proven models replace the need for years of experience. In fact, it's a case of experience replacing experience, other people's experience replacing the need for yours. With proven models, you get the benefit of learning from the mistakes of others without having to make them yourself. You also get to build on their successes. Models inform your activities, help you get the most out of your efforts, and accelerate you toward your goals. Built with the clarity of hindsight, they answer the all-important question, what's the best thing for me to do? In our research and experience, five key models stand out in the world of real estate investing. The net worth model, the financial model, the network model, the lead generation model, and the acquisition model. These five models represent the best practices of our millionaire real estate investors. A few of those investors are experienced speakers and instructors with an amazing breadth of knowledge about investing. Some are generalists who ably play whatever cards they have been dealt, and others are niche experts who are building their wealth through specialization. We took the best wisdom we can find in our research and built our models around the idea of a collective millionaire real estate investor who represents the best of them all. As a result, these five models accurately describe the most widely applicable and timeless intelligence on investing in real estate. When we set out in search of these models, we were working from the idea that two heads are better than one. By interviewing over 100 millionaire real estate investors, we amplified that simple truth many times over. For us, then, 100 heads are better than two. What we were looking for what we were looking for was perspective drawn from a large enough group to gain collective wisdom. Perspective is an amazing thing. The gift it gives us is better vision, the ability to see things as they are and as they are relative to everything else. Perspective gives you the full picture and clarity of your actions. It's our hope that the five models of the millionaire real estate investor will give you the best possible perspective and clarity to apply to your wealth building career. All right. So we got the five models, net worth model, financial model, network model, lead generation model, and acquisition model. And right now we're starting with the net worth model of the millionaire real estate investor. Your journey to becoming a millionaire real estate investor begins with your understanding of net worth and ends with you having a lot. Net worth is your worth in financial terms. Practically speaking, it's what you own minus what you owe your assets minus your liabilities. The net worth model of the millionaire real estate investor is a proven plan of action for dramatically increasing your net worth over time. It's a simple three-step process. Number one, learn the path of money. Number two, manage a personal budget. Number three, track personal net worth. For, million, for millionaire real estate investors, these steps are sacred. Their knowledge of the path of money continuously reminds them that they must always make appropriate choices to maximize their returns. With this end in mind, they purposely budget their money to maximize the amount they have to invest. Finally, after they've invested their money, they consistently measure and review the results they are getting to maximize their net worth. My aunt and uncle were the perfect example of how anyone can follow the net worth model to financial freedom. 
Clem and Woody understood that their financial wealth probably wouldn't come from the modest income they earned from their barber shop in Galena Park, Texas. They worked hard doing what they loved, but they knew early on that they need income from additional sources to fulfill their financial goals. It was very clear to them that they would have to invest and let their money go work from them. Therefore, they started budging aggressively, setting aside every dollar they could for investing. I grew up around Clem and Woody, and they cut, their hair, they cut the hair of everyone in my family each month. Even as a young child, I was aware of their purposeful frugality, and that memory has always stayed with me. Thanks to years of thrifty living, planned savings, and carefully investing, they were ready when an investor group from Austin, Texas, came to town to invite investors to buy land at the intersection of two major highways. The research showed that this was a perfect opportunity, really a no-brainer. My aunt and uncle didn't hesitate. They had the money, understood the opportunity, liked the terms, and invested in the deal. All their hard work and prudence soon paid off. A few short years later, they were the richest people in my family. They had become millionaires. And because they kept investing, they went on to become multi-millionaires. Path your money. My aunt and uncle realized that money has a path. Do you? Millionaires do. That's why they're millionaires. They know that when a dollar leaves their hands, it begins a critical journey down a path of choices and decisions. And they know that those decisions are the key to building their financial wealth. The map they follow and the guide they trust on this journey are called the path of money. The path of money describes the way money flows in and out of your life. You can think of it as a river with tributaries and distributaries with the inlets and outlets with springs that feed it and sinkholes that drain it getting channeled for strength or dispersed for weakness. Some rivers keep growing and flowing on their journey. Some dry up. The path of money works the same way. There are sources that start it down its path. Some are strong, others aren't. And the choices made as it flows will either feed or grow it, making it stronger or drain and shrink it, making it weaker. Millionaires get this. They know they have to direct their money purposely. Some people let their money wander wherever it wants to go. Millionaires don't. They direct their money to the places that will bring them the greatest financial growth and the most substantial net worth. Maybe it goes without saying, but to path money, you first must have some. Equally obvious, but just as important, the more money you path, the more you will have. Thus, getting as much money to path as you can is critical. There are only two ways to get money. You can earn money and you can receive it. You can earn money from your work and you can receive it from your assets. If you're like most people, while you like to have lots of assets that pay you money, you probably will have to start with the money you earn and that will work fine. As long as you have some cash flow from one source or the other, you're in good shape. Why? Because income allows you to participate in the path of money game. See the chart below. And this path of money chart kind of starts at the top. And it has two things at the top. It has human capital on the left and capital assets on the right. And it says you work for money. Both go to cash flow, right? So the point he's making is one is you work for money. The other is money works for you. And that comes in to cash flow. And from cash flow, you can either spend it, donate it, hold it, or invest it. And if you invest it, you could lend it or you can own the property, right? And then even further down, if it's passive, like with the lending, that would be money market, CDs, bonds, T-bills, um, or you can own it, stocks, REITs, mutual funds, 
or you get owner finance, private lending, or do business and real estate like flipping. And those become your financial returns at the bottom. And then at the bottom, there's an arrow that goes all the way back up and dumps it in at the top for cash flow. All right. So that's the chart. That's on page 129. Here is how the game is played. Once you have cash, the path presents you with four basic choices. You can consume it before spending it. You can save it by holding it. You can share it by donating it. And you can grow it by investing it. Right here at the very first crossroads is where most people get knocked out of the game. They get knocked out of the game so early that they believe they were never in it. What do they do with their money? They spend most of it, hold some of it, donate a little of it, and invest none of it. For them, the game is over. The path ends right there. For millionaires, however, the game has just begun. They have a bigger end in mind and don't intend to be stopped there. Through intentional budgeting, they make sure they always have ample money to invest. This enables them to stay in the game and move further down the path. This is where the game starts getting exciting. When you have money to invest, you have another choice, to loan or to own. You can lend your money to others for a predetermined rate of return, or you can buy an asset that could go up in value, pay you cash flow, or both. This is an interesting place in the path. To proceed wisely, you must determine with season, which season of your financial life you are in. Do you want to accumulate more wealth, or do you want to protect the wealth you already have? If you are in the wealth accumulation season of your life, you probably want to invest to own. If you are in the wealth protection season, you most likely want to invest to lend. With each of these choices, there are two basic positions. You can lend or own passively. Or you can lend or own actively. It's a critical set of decisions that can keep your money safe or make it soar. Millionaires know that passive lending is mainly a money preservation strategy. Excuse me. The rates of return that they get from passive passive lending are comparatively low because they usually are guaranteed, and most of the borrowers return around and relend the money. When factored for inflation, passive lending usually does not lead to significant increase. In net worth, unless you're a private lender. Hmm. I know some private lenders who are doing pretty good. Their rates of return, I would say, are mm, significantly above uh, market uh, interest rates. Back to the book. Millionaires know that active lending, in which they lend their money directly to businesses or individuals, can bring them higher rates of return than passive lending can. That's what we were just talking about. However, it will require them to be able to lend significant amounts of capital and that they typically will not get the benefit of appreciation. Institutions and mature individual investors are usually best suited to take this path. Asset ownership is on the other side of the path, and this is where big wealth is built. Millionaires know this and place most of their investment dollars here, buying and owning assets that can appreciate and give them cash flow. But when it comes to ownership, they know that the passive options, stocks for businesses and real estate investment trusts for real estate, usually don't build great wealth without insider positioning or great wealth having already been invested. As a result, they usually head straight for active investing in business or real estate. Millionaire real estate investors choose real estate. Why? Because they like the big upside, the small downside, and the personal control it offers. Here's the best news for investors on the path of money. The path never has to end. As money flows from your investments, you'll have more money to path, to reinvest and build more wealth. Millionaires know that at this point, the path of money can become a most rewarding, endless loop. 
If you become a millionaire real estate investor, learn the path of money, game, and play it. Budget your expenses. Once you learn the path of money, get on it and stay on it. For most people, this is easier said than done. Because they have an undisciplined approach to spending, they usually have more month left at the end of their money. This is a problem. People can't progress along the path if they spend all their income. To achieve your financial goals, you have to have some money left over at the end of every month. There has to be something left over to invest, and the best way to ensure this is to budget for it. We can thank the 19th century economist Thorstein Veblen, I hope I got that right, for coining the phrase conspicuous consumption. His study, The Theory of the Leisure Class, profiled a generation of newly rich Americans who abandoned the modesty of their Puritan forebears in favor of an ostentatious display of wealth, ostentatious display of wealth. Veblen described a kind of consumption snowball effect that ensues when individuals base their self-esteem on the possession of material goods. As fast as a person makes new acquisitions, becomes accustomed to the new standard of wealth, the new standard forthwith ceases to afford appreciably greater satisfaction than the earlier standard did. In other words, new stuff quickly becomes old, creating the need for more new stuff. It's a 19th century version of keeping up with the Joneses. They were trapped in the financially self-destructive cycle where the spinning never ends, but the joy of it does. Not a whole lot has changed. We still live in a consuming society, unrestrained and unbudgeted. Unlike the days of Veblen, we don't even need to have cash to spend it. Credit comes easy, and increasingly people are willing to mortgage their financial future for the trappings of the rich today. To put this in perspective, a 2003 report by the Federal Reserve Board showed that while the median household income was just over 43000 those households carried almost $18,700 in consumer debt. That's high interest, unsecured debt, equaling 43% of their annual income. That means that even if they set aside 10% of their annual income to pay off that debt, it could take them more than seven years to do so. It's a disturbing trend that appears to be getting worse. Instead of investing to finance their future, more and more people are spending on credit to finance their lifestyle. The hard truth is this. If you have to finance your lifestyle, you can't afford it. Millionaire real estate investors understand the temptation to live for today, but because they follow the net worth model, they successfully and consistently keep their focus on their financial future. Through budgeting and thrift management, they live management to live a comfortable lifestyle while investing a sizable percentage of the disposable income. After all, a little less of today could mean a whole lot more tomorrow. Budgeting, personal budgeting works. I do it. The millionaire real estate investors we interviewed do it, and you must do it. It's the only way wealth building gets launched and maintained. Your ability to budget successfully is directly related to your ability to differentiate between discretionary spending and required spending. It's the priceless ability to distinguish between wants and needs. They are not the same. Investors can separate the two. There is no confusion. Their required spending reflects their actual needs. Consumers don't have this financial clarity. They, their required spending reflects both their wants and their needs. The net result is that investors have money to invest and consumers don't. The next four charts tell the story. The first two, figures four and five, illustrate the difference between consumers and investors in terms of how they look at required spending. The third, figure six, shows how investors find money to invest. And the fourth, figure seven, shows why millionaires are millionaires. 
Consumers look at their monthly expenses and immediately come to the conclusion that they can't afford to invest. After all, by the time they paid for their necessities, there doesn't seem to be anything left over for investing. Consumers often complain that they never have enough income to cover their needs when really it's their spending, not their income. That's the problem. In our experience, the number one barrier to investing in real estate is a perceived lack of investment capital rather than a real one. Investors, by contrast, see it as it really is. They take an honest look at their expenses and separate the discretionary from the required. Investors know that their daily, weekly, and monthly spending decisions can add up to a lot, and they are willing to make small sacrifices today in exchange for big rewards down the road. In the end, investors see investing spending as required spending. That's why they always have money to invest. Investors want to invest and take every opportunity to set aside the money to do so. This is where the phrase pay yourself first comes from. And off the book, I've seen a lot of people say pay yourself first and they're like, they got a new car or they went out to the theater. Uh, He's talking about setting money aside and investing in your future, not buying some shit for yourself. Back to the book. They take investing so seriously that they start setting aside investment funds the moment money comes into their possession. Millionaire real estate investors take this concept a step further. They pay themselves first, second, and last. They set aside money to invest before taxes, after taxes, and after all spending. Just like the legendary investor Sir John Templeton, who when he was young lived off just 50% of his income so he could invest the rest. Millionaires play a game to see how much money they can save for investing everywhere they can. Sacrifice can be fun when you connect it to a big reward. Make no mistake about it, just as there are big differences between a consumer and an investor, there are big differences between an investor and a millionaire investor. One of the biggest differences is the amount of money a person continually sets aside for investing. Millionaires believe in the net worth model and budget to find more money to invest, a lot more. Here's a simple and effective way to keep a personal budget and start behaving like a millionaire real estate investor. Using this sample personal budget form that we've provided, see figure eight on page 138. Start with your monthly income. Ideally, you're getting both earned income from your work and unearned income from your investments. We separate the two because your goal will be to increase your monthly unearned income over time. Total the two and you have your gross monthly income. Next, decide how much you will tithe to your charities or church save for securities and reserves, invest in the future, and hold back for taxes. What's left is your net spendable income. The idea is to pay yourself first by taking care of your big goals up front. Therefore, charity, security, and investing always comes first. Taxes, of course, also come first because it's the law. Now it's time to figure out your net spendable income, where your net spendable income goes each month, your expenses. Using the sample personal worksheet, see the chart above, this is on page 138, sort through your monthly bills and tally how much you spend on big expenses, housing, food, etc. each month. Use the far left column. Once you get a grasp of your current expenses, it will take very little time to update this form periodically as your income and expenses change. This is where your goals meet your resolve, where you must hold yourself accountable to live within your prescribed means. And out of the book, this is what I talk about all the time when I say figuring out where you are in the map. 
I don't just mean personally, I mean financially as well, right? Like, are you the kind of person that people like at work and you could always be counted on and you'd always do the right thing and you always work hard and you always go the extra mile? Or are you kind of a burden on everybody? Or are you somewhere in between? Well, this is what he's trying to do to your financial life, right? Do you even know what you spend your money on? Back to the book. You'll notice that we've added two extra columns labeled required and discretionary to the expenses section of the worksheet. Take a look at your actual spending and ask yourself whether a percentage of those expenses might actually be discretionary. For example, if a monthly television bill under housing is $50, you might decide that a $35 basic monthly service is all you really need to free up $15 a month in discretionary income. We hope you'll be honest enough to admit that you could get by and get by comfortably spending less in one or more of these categories. None of us can be disciplined all the time. We all splurge a little on the things we love, and that's okay. What's not okay is to splurge unconsciously in all these areas all the time. This is where your personal resolve to meet your financial goals really comes to play. You must hold yourself accountable to live within your prescribed means, the amount of money you allow yourself to spend. It's an ongoing battle of budgeting for financial wealth. It's about making sure you have money to invest. And out of the book, it's kind of like working out, right? If you want to be healthy, you got to work out. Well, this is your, like your financial health. So that's what, that's what he's talking about right here. Back to the book. Finally, at the bottom of the worksheet is your budget analysis where you subtract subtract required expenses from net spendable income to arrive at any surplus or deficit in your monthly budget. If you show a deficit, you need to spend more time analyzing your required and discretionary spending priorities. A surplus is generally good news. That's money you can use for whatever you want. Since high school, I've kept a personal budget and tried to keep it as simple and uncomplicated as possible. From the beginning, I always set my tithing, saving, and investment goals and knew what percentage of my income I planned to dedicate to each one. I also had a good grip on my monthly expenses and knew about how much was required to cover the necessities. When Mary and I got married, that knowledge allowed me to take our paychecks and efficiently divide them among three bank accounts. One was my investing savings and tithing account to which all predetermined amount was deposited whenever we were paid. I then would transfer to my regular checking account enough to cover our required expenses. Everything that was left over our surplus went to Mary's bank account to handle the unplanned expenses and also for fun disposable income. But a funny thing started happening each month. Mary would announce that she saved an additional amount of money from her account that we could reinvest Even though I told her that money was our fun money, it was meant to be spent, a lifetime of thrifty living was too hard to shake. We should all be like Mary. Partitioning one's money into different accounts according to a predetermined budget works as a kind of fail-safe or alarm. Anytime your actual spending exceeds your budget, you have to transfer money consciously from your reserves to cover it. It's about awareness. It's about adding an extra step to the process to make sure you consider your spending decisions. When you have to think about it, you may think better about it. The good news is that once you have a handle on this process, you don't have to think so much about your daily spending unless you find you're running a deficit in one of your accounts. All the money that ends up in your surplus account is by definition discretionary. That money is for fun. Although many of our millionaire real estate investors probably would say investing that money is fun, ultimately the choice is yours. Track 
your worth. The final step in the net worth model of the millionaire real estate investor is to keep a personal balance sheet, a worksheet for tracking your net worth. The personal balance sheet is probably the greatest gift Michael gave me in our financial wealth building breakfast. He taught me to focus on my net worth and track it over time. Michael pointed out that businesses have three essential financial documents that are absent in most homes, a general ledger to record the details of business expenses, an income statement or profit and loss statement for tracking income and expenses, and a balance sheet for a snapshot of the net worth of the business at any given time. Michael didn't advocate keeping a general ledger for my household expenses. The general ledger is where business records uh, records all its expenses in detail. For an individual, a general ledger would involve the tedious tracking of all his or her monthly receipts. That's what most people think when they think of budgeting and what I like to avoid. The two documents Michael did advocate for were the P&L and the balance sheet, P&Ls for profit and loss. A household profit and loss statement is just another name for a personal budget that tracks your income and expenses to show a net surplus or deficit, or in the case of business, a profit or loss. At the time I was meeting with Michael, I had a simple budget and adhered to it pretty well. Therefore, our focus was primarily on the personal balance sheet. Using a bank loan application as our guide, we crafted a one-page worksheet for calculating my net worth. We listed all my assets, stocks, real estate, businesses, collectibles, subtracted my liabilities, the total debt I owed on those items, and calculated my net worth. That improvised worksheet went on to become the focus of our later meetings and ultimately a tool to which I credit a great deal of my current financial wealth. Michael and I started each breakfast by going over my updated personal balance sheet. And then Michael would underline the net worth total and ask the question, now, how can you make that grow? That document has evolved over the years, and I still use it. In fact, I keep a copy of my personal balance sheet with me at all times and update it every week. And I ask the same question, how can I make this grow? It was by asking and answering that question over time that I began to get a real understanding of how wealth is built, and that understanding had a massive impact on my financial well-being. It gave me a great personal perspective on my evolving finances. Over the years, I always knew exactly how far I progressed toward my financial wealth goals. I would look back at my records and calculate calculate my year-over-year progress, and by updating the balance sheet regularly, I would track year-to-year, year-to-date progress. All this added up to an awareness of where I was in relation to my financial goals, how fast I was getting there, and how far I still needed to go. The sample personal balance sheet provided... On the next page, which would be 144, so that's 144, on the next page can be completed on a quarterly, monthly, or even weekly basis. I think that monthly is a minimum frequency to keep a handle on your finances and and that most individuals would benefit greatly from reviewing their finances as I do on a weekly basis. Anytime you make a major investment, you should update your balance sheet. It was by doing this I began to understand the impact different choices I made with my money had on my net worth. Over time and with careful, consistent analysis, you'll see a familiar path emerge, the path of money. Thus, with the net worth model of the millionaire real estate investor, you begin with the path of money and you will end there as well. The insight gained from the path of money tends to lead investors to manage their budgets to maximize their investment dollars systematically. They then track their investments over time using their balance sheets to determine how each investment affects their net worth. Finally, 
through their review and analysis of the budget sheet and investment performance, their personal path of money evolves and becomes clearer and clearer. The next model, the financial model of the millionaire real estate investor. There are two ways to build financial wealth by investing in real estate. I know that sounds way too simple, but it's true. There are just two. Within those two are a vast array of variations that can give the appearance of massive complexity. And by using those various options, you can make real estate investing as complex as you want. Eventually, most millionaires do, but not in the beginning. They always start with the basics and build from there. When you truly understand the two basic drivers of financial wealth, you begin to see the fundamental opportunities they present and know how to take advantage of them. If you are like me or any of our other any of our other millionaire real estate investors, this is when you really get excited. That's the power of this financial model. It both guides you and motivates you. The two ways to make money in real estate investing, the two drivers of financial wealth are equity buildup and cash flow growth. They can happen simultaneously and you can benefit from both at the same time. Equity buildup increases your net worth and your real estate assets while cash flow growth provides a stream of unearned income. You can live on that income or reinvest it by paying down your debt or acquiring more real estate. If you keep your money in play by reinvesting the cash flow, my recommendation, you are accelerating your equity buildup and therefore the growth of your personal net worth. Remember, your net worth is a measure of your success, your score, and the game of financial wealth building. Equity buildup. When you look at equity buildup closely, see the chart on the following page, you discover that it comes from two factors, price appreciation and debt paydown, sometimes called forced depreciation, right? If you buy it right, which we will clarify in the section on the acquisition model, your real estate investment will begin with a margin of high of equity right away. This means that your initial down payment investment plus the mortgage loan you incur debt when added together will still be less than the price you could sell the property for market value. That difference is your equity in the property. Over time, as you rent the property, the two natural forces of price appreciation and debt pay down work together to increase your equity. Obviously, if the market value increases, your equity in the property goes up, but it also goes up because you are paying down the debt through the mortgage. Tenants paying it for you. Each monthly payment you make reduces the amount you owe on the loan. Thus, as the mortgage debt decreases over the term of the loan, 30 years, 15 years, whatever it is, your equity increases consistently. Let's take a real life look at this process. If you had invested in residential income property in 1988 and then at the then median home price of approximately 90000 15 years later in 2003, it would have been worth almost $170,000. Price appreciation would have gained you 81000 in equity, but that's only part of the equity buildup picture. You also would have been paying off the mortgage and thereby reducing your debt. This calculation of debt paydown requires some carefully considered assumptions. First, it assumes that you purchased a property 20% below market value, right? Second, it assumes that you made a 20% down payment, this means you would have gotten a mortgage loan of $57,600. As you make your monthly loan payment covered by the rental income from your tenants, you are paying off some portion of the loan's remaining balance and therefore reducing your debt on the property. 
As you reduce the debt, you increase your equity. In this real-life example with a loan of $57,600 and a typical 30-year mortgage, you would have, during those 15 years, reduced the loan debt to $43,334 and therefore gained another $14,266 in equity buildup. The shorter the length of the loan is, the faster you will achieve debt paydown. In the example we're using, a 15-year mortgage would have reduced the debt to zero and thereby increased the equity by full $57,600, the amount of the loan. What makes the financial model of the millionaire real estate investor so compelling is the combined impact of all these factors. This is where the power of real estate to build financial wealth is fully revealed. In the investment we have analyzed, this is how it all adds up. Your $14,400 investment in 1988 turned into equity of more than $128,506 in just 15 years. This would be like putting your $14,400 in a bank account paying an annual compounded interest rate of 15.7%. If you had used a 15-year mortgage instead of a 30-year mortgage, your equity would have grown to $171,840. That's like an annual compounded interest rate of 17.9%. In either case, this is a significant return on investment and not one you will find at a bank. And those remarkable returns don't reflect what happens when you factor for cash flow. Cash flow growth. As good as all this equity buildup is, and it is a very good and very real to a, a millionaire real estate investor, it's not the whole story. There's an added benefit of cash flow growth to consider. See figure 14. That's on page 149. Net cash flow is achieved from a real estate investment when the rental income you receive is more than the cost you incur. The costs include your expenses, an allowance for vacancy and debt service, the mortgage payment on the property, and this will all be outlined in detail in the section on the acquisition model. For now, let's just say that if you buy it right, finance it wisely, and control your expenses, you can achieve a positive net cash flow. As rents appreciate over time, historically, they increase about the same rate as price appreciation, the cash flow will grow. Once the loan is paid off, the net cash flow grows dramatically because your mortgage loan payment goes away. In our example of the $90,000 rental property purchased in 1988, we realistically could have received over 15 years of total net cash flow between $18,000 if we had a 15-year mortgage and 34000 if we had a 30-year mortgage. In 2004, our 16th year of ownership, the annual net cash flow from the property would be about $4,600 with the 30-year mortgage. In the case of the 15-year loan, since it would be paid off, our annual net cash flow would jump to over $9,400. Let's add it all up. Beginning with an investment of only $14,400, the following chart reveals the financial outcomes we could have achieved in just 15 years. This chart, so the asking price is $90,000. They get a 20% discount of $18,000 for a purchase price of $72,000. They put down 20% of that $72,000, which is $14,400. And they get a loan for the 80%, and the loan would be $57,600. $57, and then it compares the equity buildup. So with a 30-year Mortgage total equity buildup is one hundred twenty eight thousand five hundred and six dollars. 
total cash flow buildup, $34,545 for a total return of $163,051. For the 15-year mortgage, the total equity buildup is $171,840. Total net cash flow, $18,327. Total return, $190,167 for an annual compounded rate of return of 18.8%. You would have increased your net worth by a significant amount in just 15 years with only one investment in real estate. What if you did more than one? What if you applied the power of this financial model many times? What if you made several real estate investments over the course of 15 or 20 years or more? You you would become a millionaire, a millionaire real estate investor. That's the point. It's what the numbers show. It's what millionaire real estate investors know. It's where you want to go. Your financial journey. Let's see how the numbers play out. What happens when you make multiple real estate investments over a number of years? The clearest way to view this is to follow the path of the millionaire real estate investor who began to invest some years ago and then see what would have happened to those investments. Let's begin in 1983, track the progress over 20 years, and watch the numbers grow, both equity buildup and cash flow. This multi-year look at the financial model will tell a story about the journey of someone who began his or her real estate investing in 1983. For the sake of the story, let's say that person was you. With you as our model real estate investor, we will observe what you did over 20 years and how it turned out. We're going to discover how you're able to turn an initial investment of $11,248 into an equity position of over $1.6 million and an annual net cash flow of over $50,000. How did you do this from 1983 to 2002? It is an intriguing and revealing story, a realistic and exciting journey of financial wealth building. It is the story of becoming a millionaire real estate investor. It all began when you followed the wise advice of your mentor to buy it right. With that advice as your guide, each of the 15 investments you made during those 20 years was in the middle of the market at about the medium home price, purchased at 20% below market value. Your first investment back in 1983 was at the U.S. medium home price of $70,300. You paid $56,240 for the property. Invested $11,248, 20% down for the down payment. And financed the remaining 44992 with a 30-year mortgage loan. That became your fundamental formula. Median price, 20% discount, 20% down, and a 30-year loan. You stayed true to that proven formula for the next 20 years. You knew that if real estate prices and rents appreciate an average about 5% a year over the long haul, and that if you use the best available financing with a historical average interest rate of about 7.4% and held your expenses to about 40% of your rents, your equity would build up and so would your net cash flow. In fact, you predicted that your very first investment property would, after 20 years, have a market value of over $180,000 and your equity in the property be more than $160,000. And you are right. This is in fact what happened. But for you, that was only the beginning. Your mentor told you about the compounding power of making several real estate investments over time. He said it would multiply both your net worth and your passive income exponentially. Therefore, you continue to invest in real estate carefully, but consistently. 
Being realistic and needing time to accumulate some savings, you made your second investment two years later in 1985. The median price had risen to $75,500, and using your formula of 20% discount and 20% down, you acquired the property with a down payment of $12,080 and financed $48,320 with another 30-year loan. You continued implementing your real estate investment strategy by patiently saving some of your earned income and systematically searching for the next opportunity. You made it your goal to invest in another residential income property every two years, buying your third property in 1987, your fourth in 1989, and your fifth in 1991. Thus, in just 10 years, you owned five properties. You had invested $67,960 of your savings in five houses now worth over $537,000 and your equity build up to over $280,000. Your net annual cash flow already exceeded $6,800, more than half of what you invested in your first house. You knew you could apply that cash flow towards your next acquisition. In fact, since you had accumulated over $33,297 in net cash flow over the first 10 years, you could now, if you chose, Make all your future annual purchases from that accumulated cash flow. That accumulated money, when added to your original annual cash flow, would more than cover all your future down payments. Now your story really begins to get exciting. With your strong equity position and increasing annual cash flow, you began in 1993 to acquire an investment property each year for the next 10 years. Therefore, by the end of 2002, your 20th full year as a real estate investor, you own 15 residential income properties. They have a combined market value of $2.5 million, and you have equity buildup of over $1.6 million. You have become a millionaire real estate investor with just 15 buy-it-right acquisitions in only 20 years. In fact, you actually became a net, became a net worth real estate millionaire three years before that in 1999 with the 12 properties you owned then. In addition to your $1.6 million in equity at the end of 2002, you would have earned more than $303,000 in accumulated cash flow. All that cash flow would have been used to make your ongoing real estate investments or pay down your loans, converting the cash flow directly to equity. As you look back on your last 20 years, you realize you have turned your total $271,800 dollars of down payments into a return on investment of more than 1.9 million equity buildup plus accumulated cash flow. If you do no more investing over the next five years, those 15 properties would be worth nearly 3.3 million and your equity would exceed 2.4 million. As an added bonus, your annual net cash flow would be almost $90,000. Not bad. 25 years, 15 properties, 2.4 million net worth, and $90,000 in annual cash flow. Through this story, you have experienced the power of the millionaire real estate investor's financial model. It is a straightforward and real. In fact, we discovered an interesting truth in researching the actual financial position of the more than 100 millionaire real estate investors we interviewed for this book. Their basic median financial numbers are strikingly similar to what we have seen here in the 20-year model. As you can see, these investors have a median market value of $3.7 million for their investment properties, an equity position of $1.5 million, and an annual net cash flow of $85,000. 
our 20-year investment story with 15 acquisitions from 1983 to 2002 generated $1.6 million in equity, virtually identical to the case of the millionaire for millionaire real estate investors, with a market value of $2.6 million less than those interviewed, and an annual cash flow of $50,500, also less than our millionaire real estate investors. The millionaire real estate investors we interviewed also had more debt in their investments, 60% versus the 38% in our story. It would appear that they are buying larger properties, probably multifamily, and accruing more debt but greater cash flow. We have been more cautious and perhaps conservative in applying this financial model. In the end, though, it's the equity that matters most and has the greatest direct impact on personal net worth. The lesson from our journey, your journey, is this. If you follow the path of a millionaire real estate investor, if you make real estate investments, if you buy them right, if you consistently repeat the process over time, you inevitably will become a net worth millionaire. May this journey of the financial model, the story we took the liberty to put you in, become your real life journey. Perhaps it already is. Buy it right. Pay it down. Pay it off. This is the motto I want you to adopt. The litany I want you to repeat to yourself constantly. This is how I want you to build your financial wealth through real estate. All this will become clear when we investigate the acquisition model. But for now, I want you to internalize this three-part reminder. Buy it right, pay it down, pay it off. When you buy it right, you make your money going in. You assure yourself of achieving the best of equity buildup and cash flow growth. When you pay it down, you'll be adding even more to your equity buildup. When you pay it off and continue to own it and rent it, you will bring more and more net cash flow into your financial life. You'll have a growing stream of unearned income. Your money will be working for you. This is the theme of the Millionaire Real Estate Investors Financial Model. Buy it right, pay it down, pay it off. We hope you will make this model yours. The network model of the millionaire real estate investor. No one ever succeeds by himself or herself. No one. Behind every success story is another success story. Behind every successful person is an equally successful person. While the term self-made is used commonly, the unspoken fact is there are no self-made people, whether biologically, spiritually, physically, personally, professionally, or financially. So look around you and know this. Millionaire investors aren't succeeding without the help of others. For every millionaire real estate investor you might know, there's a group of people working behind the scenes who helped cause or support his or her success. They are the millionaire real estate or they're the millionaire network, an intentionally recruited group of people who each play a key role in helping the millionaire real estate investor succeed. Investors couldn't succeed without this group. Neither can you. All right. Not in the book. I've actually been kind of lightly covering this in other podcasts. There are many investors who look at their vendors and it's kind of crude, but it's kind of like fucking on the first date, right? They just, I just want to call you up and use you for the thing I need and then go back to what I'm doing. You can kind of tell by their posts where they just haphazardly ask for like a hard money lender or who's got a deal or something like that, right? So what what they're about to cover here is they're more than just a vendor. They're on your team and can help you. Back to the book. 
A millionaire real estate investors network is an interconnected group of people with three things in common. They play an active professional role in real estate investments. They are the best at what they do and they're willing to help you when you need help. Don't confuse this with your leads network. This is your work network. Although over time, you also will ask those people for leads and try to include them in your leads network. This is not your primary reason for building your work network. These are the people who give you advice, guidance, wisdom, information, instruction, intelligence, knowledge, mentoring, strategy, counsel, contacts, connections, leads, leadership, leverage, and labor. Some also provide partnering when you want it and honest feedback even when you don't. This work network is your personal strategic wealth building association with others. It is where you go to find all the people you need to find, learn all the things you need to know, and get done all the things you need to get done. In short, your work network is your investing lifeline. And out of the book, if you just listen to people on my podcast and reach out to them, you'd have a pretty badass fucking network. Back to the book. But be careful. It isn't just anyone you need in your lifeline. If you have a dream, you will need a dream team. If you have a big dream, you'll need a big dream team. If you have a big and powerful dream to achieve financial wealth through real estate investing, you will need a big and powerful dream team to achieve it. You need people, the right people, to help you get what you want. If you want to become a millionaire real estate investor, you must bring together a powerful group of people, a dream team, who can all play the right roles at the right time so that you can achieve your financial dreams. You need your own millionaire real estate investing work network. The members of your work network will provide you with a wide variety of important and interrelated things. They will help you from beginning to end with your transactions. They will inform and advise you about what to do and what not to do. They will provide the best work at the best price in the best time. They will be there when you really need them and no later. If you don't have a work network, you'll be working alone. And this is why I tell people, by the way, go out to meetings. And if you never need someone, you'll have to take whoever you can get at that moment. You won't know if you're getting the best advice, the best work, the best price, or the best time. You'll just know you're in a pinch and you can't do it by yourself. Contrast this with already having this network set up. You'll know the best, know what they charge, know what they can do, and know you can count on them. You'll be the front end of good decisions instead of the back end of desperate ones. You'll get what you need when you need it. You'll be able to make great decisions quickly because you don't have to slow down to go looking for people. You'll succeed instead of settle. Great work networks help make millionaires millionaires. Not in the book. This totally works. There's seldom a situation that pops up or something that pops up that I don't know that I can't call one of a dozen people who will immediately help me. But you got to think of that like, and they might get to it in the book, but you got to think of like that as an investment too. Like I just didn't show up one day and start asking these people for shit, right? Like I did things for them too. And I helped them out too. And I helped the community out too. So I think I don't want you thinking of it as a one way street or you will likely fail. All right, back to the book. The three circles of your work network. Do you want to be the best investor you can be? Then surround yourself with the very best work network you can. It's that simple. 
Take a look at the chart below. We've drawn it this way for two important reasons. And right in the middle is you, the millionaire real estate investor. Then the first circle around it, they're calling that the inner circle. That's consultants, partners, and mentors. All right. Then the second circle around you is called the support circle. And that's property managers, attorneys, lenders, real estate agents. Hey, it's me. Investors. Hey, that's me. Accountants, contractors. And then the last circle is a service circle, right? Courthouse clerks, masons, plumbers, roofers, concrete companies, insurance agents, financial planners, developers, landscapers, title companies, appraisers, inspectors, leasing agents, builders, appliance rentals, cleaning services, lawn service, floor and carpet, carpenter, electrician, painter, mat, maintenance technician, I'm sure many, many more. We've drawn it this way for two important reasons. First, millionaires surround themselves with great people. And second, millionaires run in the right circles. There's a practical reason why they do this and a scientific explanation for why it works. They surround themselves with great people because they mean to be great investors who intend to do more than one deal. They plan to duplicate their success many times over. To do that, they have to actively, purposely, and selectively build powerful, working relationships that are long-term and mutually beneficial. They're creating a circle of influence with themselves at the center. Millionaires don't just sink influential people. They become influential. There's a scientific reason why this works. When you are creating your own circles of influence, you're actually pulling people toward you and your goals. You're creating a true force of nature. It's called a centripetal force. The word centripetal is from Latin for center-seeking. And refers to any force that directs object toward the center of a circle. In their world, millionaire real estate investors are such a force. They intentionally attract the right people into their circles of influence and then pull them in close around them. They are a center of influence. With this in mind, we want you to do two things. Visualize yourself surrounded by great people and start running in the right circles to attract and keep them. When you're clear about what you want your financial life to look like, you'll be clear about who you need to surround yourself with and what you'll need to do to attract those people. We want you to be intentional in your work relationships and never settle. And actually, not in the book. This is what we were talking about earlier. Are you the kind of person that somebody would lend $50,000 to you or trust you on something? That That's kind of always he's talking about. Like, what are you doing in your life right now, even before you start real estate investing or doing anything else, it would start to attract the kind of people you would need in your life, whether they would fit or not. All right, back to the book. The right people in the three circles of your investment life will provide you with important benefits. Number one, leadership and advocacy. Number two, advice and management. Number three, work and results. You will need all three to take your investment life to its highest level. Each circle has its own function, and building a work network is about finding the right people to fulfill each of these functions. The model for building a work network is quite simple, but the positive impact on your financial success is quite profound. The lines that separate the circles in the work network chart shown above are not hard lines, but logical ones based on the roles people would play in your real estate investing. As a result, you'll have three distinct groups in your work network, your inner circle, 
your support circle, and your service circle. Your inner circle, leadership and advocacy. Your inner circle is compared is composed, sorry, of the key people who absolutely and truly care about your financial success. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. They are committed to you. These are the people closest to you, the select group you trust the most. All of them should have more investment knowledge, experience, and success than you have and be willing to mentor and guide you. Think of them as your informed board of directors for wealth building and real estate investment decisions, your own personal millionaire mastermind. What separates the members of your inner circle from everyone else is not what they do for you professionally, but what they do for you personally. If you don't know what to do, they tell you or help you find someone who can. If you need help, they will provide it or connect you with someone who will. If you need a partner, they become one or find one. This willingness to go out of their way to provide you with leadership and advocacy pulls them close to you, into your inner circle. While they also might be in your support or service circle because of their professions, it's their active role in your personal investing success that makes them special. For example, they may be contractors, property managers, real estate agents, but for now, you, they're that, and more. They are your mentors, consultants, and partners. And you will touch them at least once a month. Your support circle, advice and management. Your support circle is composed of the key fiduciary people in your real estate investment life. As fiduciaries, they are always looking out for your best interest. They are the professionals you rely on to add, advise you on both the details of specific transactions and the people you will need to complete them. If need be, they will even contract and manage some of those relationships for you. They are the real estate agents, lenders, accountants, and others who are brought up on every opportunity in an important way and are key to almost every transaction in some way. These are your transaction advisors and managers, your transactioneers. Think of your support circle as investment company executives who are not on the payroll. They have the ability to manage any of the transaction pieces for you and, if need be, can manage all of them. For example, your contractor may refer a landscaper to you or hire one for you. Your real estate agent may connect you with a property manager or provide one as a service. It is the businesses they are in that will determine their primary role in the transaction. Your support circle forms the foundation of the professional team you rely on and you touch these people on every transaction. Your service circle, work and results. Your service circle is composed of specialized independent contractors and freelancers. These service providers will perform specific functions for a particular property or transaction. They are the inspectors, the electricians, painters, and others you may need depending on the situation. But their scope is limited. What they touch in a transaction usually is confined to what they specifically do or the special service they provide. You will personally direct them in the work they do or your support team will manage them. In the end, the details of the transaction will dictate which service professionals you will need. These are the foot soldiers on the front line of your wealth building, and you cannot succeed without them. They are the skilled professionals who physically touch the transaction and the investment. Remember, what they do, how well they do it, how fast they do it, and what they charge for doing it can make or break a a deal. Your service Circle provides specific work you need for any particular situation 
and you will touch these people whenever their services are required. Working your work network. One of the biggest challenges for most investors is knowing when to ask for help. Most wait until they actually need it and as a result end up taking the help they can get instead of getting the help they need. This is what separates millionaires from everyone else. Millionaires don't wait. In fact, they understand the issues so well, they make getting into relationships with the right people before they need them their number one priority. And there's a picture here, page 165, figure 23. Number one, build it before you need it. Seek, who do you know that I should know? Qualify, what would you do if you were me? Two, maintain it so you have it. Call them every month, mail them something of interest every month, personal notes, gift three times a year, and your inner circle, meet them every month. Share your plans and goals, review your net worksheet. Number three, engage it. When you need it, do deals. Keep your word. Don't talk bad about anyone. Don't shortchange anyone. Refer business to work network. That's the chart on page 165, figure 23. Working with this network is the easy part. Finding the right people and building it are not so easy. It's not that it's actually hard. It's that it will take time. If you intend to be very successful, only very successful individuals will qualify to be in your work network. This is why it takes time. You'll have to turn over a lot of stones to find your network treasures. As challenging as this may seem, it is not that difficult to do. It's simply an issue of time on the task. To build a quality work network, you must put in the time necessary to accomplish it. Build your work network. When I first got into the real estate business, I read an article on the building a business that gave me direction and set me on a strong course. The advice boiled down to calling on industry professionals and asking them two questions. Who do you know that I should know? What would you do if you were me? It sounded so simple that I almost didn't do it. However, since I was just getting started and needed to get moving, I was willing to do anything, and so I went ahead and did it. At first, I wasn't sure what I was doing, but then I started to see the wisdom in this approach. The first question was a pure support circle and service question. It was a networking question intended to open doors I would not have been able to open on my own. By calling someone up and saying, I was told by a mutual acquaintance that you were the person to know in real estate investing, and I was wondering if I might drop by and meet you in the next few days. With that question, I was able to meet a lot of quality people and was soon on the inside track to building a great work network better and faster than I could have any other way. The second question was an inner circle question. If the suggestion someone gave me sounded halfway decent, I followed it. Then I went back and asked, I did it, and here's what happened. What would you suggest I do next? Anyone who's willing to do, willing to be in my inner circle would warm up to this, give me additional suggestions, and over time, if I wanted, begin to mentor me. The quality of their advice, actually, I want to go back to that. He nailed it right there. One of the tests, there are a lot of people out there who may want to help you, and you'll go ask them. And they will give you something to do. And a lot of people don't do it. And then they'll come back and ask for more advice. If you do that too many times, people stop trying to help you. Because you're not doing the things, you know, that... Like, I've been in this situation several times. And a couple times I caught myself 
right in between. I was like, you know what? I asked for the advice. I think I'm going to take it. Like, here, I'll give you a little Easter egg. There's a podcast that never aired and never would air. I wanted to air it. I thought about it for a second. I shared it with some people I trust. They all told me not to air it, so I never aired it. Now it's dead. It'll never be out there, right? So if you don't take the advice from your group um, or the individual you're going after, they may not listen to you anymore. The process worked, and over time, I developed a millionaire's work network. This process will work for you, too, if you're willing to work the process. It is simple and to the point and gets you in the work network building game fast. All it takes is to ask these two questions to enough people. Maintain your network. However, once you have someone in one of your circles, you are far from done. You don't want to build a work net. You don't just want to build a work network. You want to maintain it for the rest of your investing life. Maintaining your network is about building solid relationships and reputations people can trust. Over and over in our research, we heard the phrase relationship and reputation equals deals to the point where we realized we were hearing a mantra. We were hearing about the two R's of networking, relationships and reputation. Relationships are built by communication and reputations are built by track record. The simple one, two, three plan for maintaining solid relationships goes like this. Call them, mail them, see them. Each step represents a unique way to contact your work network or what we sometimes refer in the lead generation as a touch, right? So number one, call them every month. Number two, mail them something of interest every month. And three, and for your inner circle, meet them every month. Why do you think I have different RDI meetings and I keep increasing the number of things we do? That's not an accident. I want to hang out with you guys more. I want to meet more of you guys. I want to spend more time with you. And if I don't take the time and set it aside and plan these things out ahead of time, they don't always happen, right? That's one way I'm doing it. There's a lot of other ways I'm doing it too. Back to the book. First, call them every month. Find out how they're doing, share how you're doing, and talk about real estate investing. Just two or three calls a day will allow you to touch virtually ever, everyone in your network network every month. Second, mail them something of interest and value every month. Create a mailing list of your work network members in your contact database and send them a news article, an interesting story, or advice on real estate investing. Include a handwritten note. One mailing a month is all it will take. Third, for the people in your inner circle, see them every month and do one additional thing. Pay them a personal visit each month. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner, just a cup of coffee will do. Your goal is to tell them what you're doing, review your net worth worksheet with them, and ask for their advice and guidance. You probably will have no more than three to five true mentors, so this is a matter of only one or two meetings a week. Maintaining your work network boils down to three simple questions you ask yourself. Who am I calling today? Who am I seeing this week? Who am I mailing this month? This is all it takes. Time does the rest. Engage your work network. Reputation will take a little longer to build. It is who you are and what you stand for in their minds, and it takes time and interaction for that to become clear. That means you will have to engage your network on a regular basis and in the right way. Here are the five things you must do over time to develop a track record that will cause the people in your work network to respect and trust you. We call them the five rules of engagement. Number one, do deals. 
Number two, keep your word. Number three, don't talk bad about anyone. Number four, don't shortchange anyone. Number five, refer business to your work network. The first rule of engagement is to do deals. You must be a player in the real estate investment game. Look for real estate opportunities, make offers, and do deals. Otherwise, you are not really an investor. You're not taking the advice you're being given, and you're not hiring your network. In other words, you could be wasting their time. The second rule of engagement is to keep your word. Always say what you mean and mean what you say. Walk your talk, under-promise, and over-deliver. You want to become known as someone who is reliable, someone people can trust. Don't miss appointments or show up late. Fulfill your obligations. It's about being where you say you'll be and doing what you'll say you'll do. I was talking about this before too. This starts right now where you're at. Be honest with yourself. Are you a piece of shit at work? Think about it. Are you a bad husband? Bad wife? Are you a bad kid? Could you do more for your... You see where he's going with this, right? Are you never on time right now? Change that shit. Back to the book. The third rule of engagement is not to talk bad about anyone. This is about keeping your negative thoughts about others to yourself. People will believe that if you talk about others to them, you'll talk about them to others. No one trusts a gossip. The fourth rule of engagement is not to shortchange anyone. Give people the time you promise and the money you agreed to pay. Trying to get out people. Uh, Trying to get out of paying people the attention or money they deserve is the fastest way to ruin your reputation. Probably the fastest. The fifth rule of engagement is to refer business to your work network. Go out of your way to get others to use your work network. The quickest way to show you trust and care about people is to recommend them to others. When you refer members of your network to others, you're building their businesses and sending them a powerful message. You will engage the different circles of your network at different times. Your inner circle, your mentors, consultants, and partners accounts for your most valued working relationships. You'll see these people every month where you have ongoing work or not. These are the individuals who help set your vision, your goals, and your strategies for achieving them. Those in your support circle are called into action with almost every transaction. These professionals will provide invaluable service and advice in the course of working out a deal. Your service circle is engaged on an as-needed basis. Every transaction will be different and will dictate the qualified specialists you need. Working with these individuals will solidify your reputation over time, deepen these relationships. Your work network can become what you want it to become and ultimately mirror your vision for your life. If you have ambition and goals, it will reflect them. If you don't, it will reflect that. To achieve your personal financial dreams, you will need to surround yourself with mentors, support advisors, and service providers who match your financial dreams. And not in the book by the way, um, are all the pieces of shit in your life? How many people do you have in your life holding you back, telling you you can't do it, telling you you're never going to amount to anything, calling you stupid, that you weren't born that way? Um, He doesn't say it, but like crabs in a bucket, it's kind of a two-part thing, right? You let go of one and you reach up for the other. The lead generation model of the millionaire real estate investor. Oh, also, um, once you're in there, reach back down. All right, back to the book. Probably the most common question on the tip of every new investor's tongue is now that I'm ready to invest, how do I find great investment properties? 
The lead generation model of the millionaire real estate investor answers that question. Without leads, prospective properties that look like great opportunities, your investment plan can't be accomplished. To be successful, you need leads, lots of them, in fact, and the more the better. With more leads, you get more opportunities, and with more opportunities, you get to pick the very best among them. This is what millionaires do. They get the most leads, and as a result, get the best properties. You could say it's quantity of opportunities first and quality of picks second. This is why millionaires take lead generation seriously and take it big. They know that finding great investment properties is a numbers game and that quality is in the quantity. That's something I want to go back to, too, because when you talk about people, I talk about this to people. It's like, well, I don't want too many leads. I don't want too many people reaching out to me. I did. You don't have to do everything, but you do have to do something, right? You do have to do deals, but pick the best ones. You want as many leads coming in as possible because that's just you want as many opportunities as possible. It seems counterintuitive, but you need, you'd rather have more to call than, than not enough. Who cares if you have a hard time keeping up with it? Just pick the best ones. Get out there and do some fucking shit. Back to the book. Finding investment properties isn't easy, but it isn't complicated either. It's about knowing what you're looking for and looking for it. Often investors aren't clear enough about what they want to find and therefore are unsure how to find it. Or worse, this lack of clarity leads them to find the wrong property and mistake it for the right one. Oh, not in the book. I have a lot of buyers who do this to me as we're calling the RDI database ask for help, tell me what they want to do. I tell them that the best way to do it and they don't want to do it that way. They want to do it some other way. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Go out and burn yourself, I guess. Right. It's a fucking point of even asking. I don't understand sometimes. <laughs> At least my dumb ass, when I ask people for help, I generally uh, implemented what they, what they, what they told me to do. Anyway, back to the book. This is where lead generation model of the millionaire real estate investor comes in. It bridges the gap between your investment goals and the investment properties that will help you achieve them. And not only will inform your property search, but also power it. A lot of people confuse doing the wrong thing with bad luck. Yeah, I know a lot of those people. It's not bad luck. It's just you. The lead generation model shows you how to prospect and market for investment leads and is one of the main ways you can quote unquote, luck out in the investment game. The four key areas of your lead generation model. The millionaire real estate investors lead generation model is built around four core questions. Number one, what am I looking for? Number two, who can help me find it? Number three, how will I find the property or the people connected to it? Which properties are the real opportunities? When you answer these four questions and take action, they're well on your way, you're well on your way to doing deals. Question number one, what am I looking for? Your lead generation model is driven by your criteria, the economic and physical details of a property that will best meet your investing goals. As millionaire real estate investor George Meadoff, me, that's different, put it, your criteria it's not the made off that we're thinking of. It's a different one, but I don't know how to say it. Um, your criteria from the operational base from which you make all your investment decisions. Your criteria provide you with as precise a picture as possible of your ideal investment property. And the clearer that picture is, the better the odds are that you'll recognize it when you see it. 
Knowing exactly what you're looking for helps you sift through large numbers of leads effectively and efficiently and has added benefit of helping you make others make offers quickly and confidently once you find a match. Yeah, if you don't know what you're looking for, how the fuck are you going to know it when you find it? You know how many flips I've sent people or deals I sent people, they pack, just sell it to someone else and they're like, wait, I want to then go sell it. Investor makes $35,000, $40,000. Like, then they want to come back and do it. You didn't know what you're looking for in the first place. If you if you can't, when when it's right in front of you, screaming, and you look at all the numbers, you do your due diligence, and you got to know what you're looking for or you're going to run right past the damn thing and somebody else is going to pick it up. Back to the book. Clear criteria serve as a wanted poster, a missing property report you circulate through your prospecting and marketing efforts. The quality of your criteria and how clearly you communicate them ultimately can determine the quality of the leads you get from the lead generation efforts. It will pay great dividends to build your criteria carefully in the beginning and revise them over time as experience dictates. Simply put, if you don't put what you're looking for, if you don't know what you're looking for, how will you know when you found it? Maybe even more important, how will someone else help you find it? It's easy to say you're looking for undervalued properties that will appreciate in cash flow, but what does that really mean? It's the difference between saying you're looking for investment property and saying you're looking for a well-capped three-bedroom, two-bathroom, single-story brick house with a two-car garage that was built in the last 10 years and can be bought below market value. If you're going to invest in real estate, you need to be clear about what you want to invest in. That is your criteria. Having no criteria leads you anywhere and everywhere, but in the end leaves you nowhere. Having criteria leads you where you want to go. Having specific criteria allows you to narrow your search and develop expertise about the kinds of property you want to invest in. Millionaire real estate investors have clearly defined criteria. In fact, they have two sets of criteria, what they will consider and what they will buy. The first is somewhat general and the second is very specific. The great thing about your criteria is what you'll consider is that you can f- use them to narrow your search in two different ways. You can put them at the front end of your lead generation, thereby receiving fewer but better leads, or put them at the back end and thereby receive more leads but of less quality. Either way will work. So experiment to see which way works best for you. In the first instance, instance, your what you'll consider criteria serves as your filter on the front end. And in the second, those criteria serve as your filter on the back end. Here is where your criteria for what you will buy kick in because some of your leads will be suspects, unqualified leads, and some will be prospects, qualified leads. Having well-defined criteria for what you will buy allows you to reject suspects and focus on prospects quickly. You will learn that working with suspects instead of prospects costs money, and money, for the most part, is not very productive. Thus, your lead generation in the end must include a qualification and elimination process, and that's what your what you'll buy criteria will do for you. Filter and eliminate the suspects and identify the quality prospects. The reason you would rarely do lead generation with your what I'll buy criteria is that your search could be so narrow that you miss some great opportunities. 
That's why you start with the general announcement. I buy houses and then narrow it down with I buy houses that meet my specific criteria. This sorting process is one of the best ways to develop expertise in the kind of properties you've targeted. Every property you see, every suspect you eliminate, every prospect you investigate, and every deal you ultimately make increases your knowledge and refines your criteria. Think of it as on-the-job training. But in the end, your best deals usually will be those that most tightly conform to your strict criteria. You might even say the deal is in the details. There are seven major categories you must make decisions about to define your investment property. Criteria. Location, type, economic, condition, construction, features, and amenities. The first three, location, type, and economic, are foundational and the most important. Let's take a look at those three. Number one, location. The first area where millionaire real estate investors narrow their search is location. Picking a geographic area not only keeps the process manageable and affordable, but it also allows you to become an expert quickly. It's about focus. It's about specializing in a neighborhood, subdivision, or area of town until you have a clear understanding of all the factors and determine local property values and rental rates. Those values and rates are ultimately comparative. If an area consists primarily of single-family brick homes with three bedrooms and two baths, it's important to know if a house with two bedrooms and one bath with siding tends to sell or rent for less. This kind of comparative pricing runs all the way from major features such as bedrooms, bathrooms, and square footage to smaller details such as vaulted ceilings and desirable landscaping. Picking an area helps you master this information more quickly so you can make informed decisions about the properties you find there. The physical location may be one of the most important factors in the value of a home. To put it plainly, the average home in a great neighborhood almost always commands a higher price than does an identical home in a less desirable area. Location, location, location is the oldest cliche in the real estate book, but it remains valid. Don't ever forget it or get tired of saying it because location is one of is the one thing about any property that is impossible to duplicate. Location what location is what gives each piece of real estate its true uniqueness. For the millionaire real estate investor, finding a great location is a process of zeroing in. Obviously, you need to start with a great country that allows for and supports property ownership. From there, you take a great city that isn't completely overbuilt and has growing economic prospects and start looking for real estate. You're looking for desirable and emerging neighborhoods or communities. Historically, these tend to be areas close to work, retail, and recreation centers that have either have established reputations for great quality of life and great schools or are emerging. Transitional neighborhoods on the rise can be ideal for investors. It can be very hard to find opportunities in established neighborhoods because everyone wants to live there and so prices tend to get pushed up. But in transitional neighborhoods, homes are often overlooked and undervalued. And I actually did a podcast on this one. It was part seven of my wholesale wholesale series. If you go back, it was obviously directed towards wholesaling and wholesalers. But talking about the success I had and my investors have and still have right now, working the fringe areas of so of these type A properties, right? Which is what they're talking about, type A properties. So we will we will identify and target type A areas, and then we will pay attention to what's happening 
at the edges of these areas where there's opportunity, right? Probably one of the most amazing stories, comeback stories of Detroit of all time would be the Bagley neighborhood. The Bagley neighborhood just didn't happen. The Bagley neighborhood was the result of the neighborhood directly to the east of it called University District blowing up three, four years before and tripling prices in like five or six years. This pushed a ton of people west into similar houses that were smaller, but almost as well built with similar square footage. So they weren't quite as nice. They were class A. They were like class B. But now, fast forward three, four years later, I would almost consider Bagley class A. But that this is Detroit specific, of course. I'm sure wherever you're listening to this, you can think of a really good part of town that's always been strong. And then you can think of the edges of that and think of some neighborhoods that have come back or blown up because of it. Another example I can give for the suburbs, for those listening to make more sense, at least in Metro Detroit, would be like Oak Park or Hazel Park as a reaction of, or Ferndale for that matter, more recently, right? As Royal Oak, which is this community right off, right on Woodward, part of the Woodward corridor. I mean, it just exploded every, and still everybody wants to live there, right? And that priced a lot of people out, but then the edges became more attractive, right? Like uh, Oak Park, Ferndale schools, right? Or Ferndale or Clawson, the stuff around it. Hazel Park just, I mean, it just went insane. Just blew it. That's one of those reasons. So that's, that's what he's talking about. All right, back to the book. Within a great neighborhood, location becomes even more precise. You're looking for the best streets and lots. It's fairly intuitive. People like privacy, but also like access. A house in a small cove often brings a higher rent or sales price and does a similar house on an adjoining but highly trafficked street. Likewise, a house on a residential street will fare better for an investor that will one then one will cross from the street from a shopping mall. Deeply wooded lots are better than small treeless ones. Big lots, corner lots, cul-de-sacs, and secluded lots are desirable to a potential renter or home buyer. Don't forget the zoning. Some of the best deals I've done, and many of those our investors shared with us, hinged on zoning issues. Lots that are zoned commercial or multifamily, even those adjacent to or near yours, can affect value favorably or unfavorably depending on the conditions. A real estate agent once brought me an excellent deal. It was a it was for a $460,000 commercial lot on a corner of a major thoroughfare in my community. Commercial developers were just beginning to develop the area, and we knew the real estate would quickly be in demand as the limited space was built out. But in investigating the lot, my agent picked up on a zoning t- detail of an adjoining lot that made the one we'd targeted extremely valuable. My property had access to utilities, while my neighbors did not. The current owner had more real estate than he could afford to hold, and to keep the rest, he needed to sell this property quickly. We we bought it and began negotiating with the owner of the adjoining lot to trade access to my utilities for some of his land. It would have been a great deal for both of us, but unfortunately, it fell through at the 11th hour. Forced to rethink our strategy, we rezoned to include retail development, in addition to office, the lot still had access to utilities and was now even more desirable because retail property usually sells for more than office. 
a bank ended up buying the lot for about $1.1 million, netting me $640,000. This transaction was made possible by one factor, location, location, location. Number two, type. The second essential area of criteria is property type. Are you looking for single-family homes or multifamily properties, urban or suburban, resort or ranch, new construction or resale, lots or land? Since we focus on investing in residential real estate, properties where people live, let's take a closer look at the single-family and multifamily properties. You can acquire houses, condos, apartments individually or buy them in bunches by purchasing duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, and even large condo and apartment complexes. The conventional wisdom is that single-family homes offer the most reliable demand and appreciation, while multifamily properties offer the best opportunities for cash flow. On the surface, this plays out. In most markets, the majority of buyers want to own a home, and so this demand tends to keep prices moving upward over time. Also, by and large, the market for single-family homes is set by non-investors. These individuals are buying a home, and emotional factors play into their willingness to buy at a certain price. Multifamily properties, in contrast, are bought and sold largely by investors, and this means that their prices are determined dispassionately by the value of the, at- the rents they represent. However, rents appreciate over time at almost the same pace as home appreciation. Thus, by default, both single-family and multifamily properties go up in price over time. The two tend to be counter-cyclical. When housing is affordable, rents go down and vacancies go up. This means houses are appreciating in value while rental properties and rents decline. But when housing becomes less affordable, the opposite tends to be true. Vacancies go down and rents rise. Neither option, single-family or multifamily, is intrinsically better than the other. They both offer strong benefits to an investor over time. The decision to include single-family or multifamily properties in your criteria ultimately depends on your goals. You can buy single-family homes for appreciation and relative stability, building your net worth, or you can emphasize multifamily properties that offer multiple streams of income, building your cash flow. Number three, economic To put it plainly, you can't build your economic criteria unless you have a firm idea what properties are really worth. Any successful investor will tell you that it pays to know property values and rental rates. Actually, it's essential. You have to understand current market prices for property sales and current market rental rates to know what your economic criteria should be. Your economic criteria break down into four distinct parts. Number one, the price range in which you want to buy. Two, the discount you will require. Three, the cash flow you expect to receive. Four, the appreciation you hope to make. Basically, the price you pay after your discount will go a long way towards determining your cash flow and appreciation. If we add the two issues of hassle, the time and work involved in dealing with with typical tenants for that price range, and liquidity, how quickly you might be able to sell the property, To cash flow and appreciation, we get four broad categories we must consider in determining the price range we want to buy. In the final analysis, it's best to build your economic criteria toward middle of the market. There's a chart on page 182, figure 34 is what they're talking about. It says be in the middle of the market. And what we have is we have an X and Y axis, right? Just like... uh, 
from your math class in high school, right? So draw an X and Y axis, right? And on the, the, the X axis is cash flow, hassle, appreciation, and liquidity. And on the Y axis, low end properties, average properties, and high end properties. And then we have high, medium, and low. So if you look at this chart, let's flip to page 182. Shows great deals, good deals, and it shows where all these things intersect, and it creates an area that he's recommending, which is about medium hassle, medium appreciation, medium cash flow, and medium price, right? Anyway, go look at that on page uh, 182. The chart below shows how the four broad factors, cash flow, appreciation, hassle, and liquidity, tend to work at various price points. Our research shows the best combination of these four factors, the sweet spot, if you will, lies on the low end of the middle of any market. This is where the great deals are found and made. Cash flow can be best at the low end of the market, but these properties can represent the most work for investors. Don't tend to appreciate as well and aren't as liquid. High-end properties tend to appreciate well, but their cash flow is usually the worst. It takes longer to sell them, and so their liquidity factor is low, and because of the expectations of typical high-end renters and buyers, they can represent a hassle for the investor. Especially in the beginning, we advise taking the solid cash flow, strong appreciation, and low hassle offered by mid-market properties. It's about identifying these bread-and-butter properties in your chosen location. In general, it's best to be where the largest market is, and generally speaking, the majority of renters and buyers will be in the average price properties. In this market segment, larger numbers of renters and buyers can increase demand to drive appreciation. You are playing the averages to have the greatest odds for success. With your location and property type in hand, spend some time getting to know property values and rental rates. You want to get in the habit of browsing newspaper and internet listings and taking notes. Or if you have access to the MLS, that's great too. Craigslist for rent, rental meter call people. Back to the book. If you drive or walk through your target area, set aside time to drop in on open houses and inspect rentals. If you see a for rent sign, call the number on it. Whether you're talking to a real estate agent or owner or a property manager, ask a few pointed questions. Why is the property priced the way it is? How does it compare to similar properties in the neighborhood? What kind of person typically buys or rents this property? The more you research, inspect, and ask questions about the properties in your area, the better your understanding of value will be and the easier it will be to formulate your economic criteria. For millionaire real estate investors, this criteria building process begins with determining their foundational criteria of location type and economic, and it doesn't end there. Let's turn our attention to the millionaire real estate investors criteria worksheet. See part one below and look at all the criteria you need to consider. This worksheet is designed to walk you through the the thought process of building your criteria from beginning to end. So if we look at this chart, it's on page 184. Number one is location. And it says country, state and province, taxes, rental laws, weather, then the county or parish, the city or town, taxes or service, neighborhood, school district, crime, transportation, shopping and recreation, street, traffic size, lot, zoning, 
adjoining lots, lot size, trees, privacy, landscaping, orientation, view. Number two, the type. Single family home, condo, townhome, mobile home, zero, uh, zero lot, garden, small multifamily, duplex, fourplex, large multifamily, land lot, pre-construction, resale, urban, suburban, exurban, rural, resort vacation, farm, ranch, and economic price range from discount of, cash flow of, and appreciation per year. All right. By checking the categories and filling in the blanks in the seven principal areas, you should get a tight bullet point description of your ideal real estate investment opportunity. Location is the first principal area of your criteria worksheet. The subcategories listed here are meant to be reminders to investigate all the particulars of your prospective location. Are there favorable rental laws there? Does this neighborhood have a great school that will attract families year after year? What is the crime rate? Do work, retail, and recreation centers nearby make the property more marketable? Only by bearing in mind these many factors can you make an informed decision about location, and in the process of considering them, you'll also develop a great sense of who your eventual renter or buyer might be. Remember that real estate is always ultimately a game of local comparative values, so the location you choose and the selection you make will affect the number of opportunities available to you and their relative value as investments. The second area on the criteria worksheet is type. Do you want to live and invest or do you want to invest in urban or rural properties, new construction or resale properties? These are broad classifications that can dictate the overall nature of the property. This is also where you decide whether your properties will be single family or multifamily or even vacant lots. Your economic criteria make up the third area on your worksheet. The first and most obvious category here is price range. You'll need to evaluate your buying power and pick a price point you can afford. Moreover, you need to be financially positioned to act quickly when properties become available. And so you'll want to stay within your current cash and financing means. When you buy a property, you have two choices to make regarding the price. You can buy at market price and expect the price to rise or buy at a discount and have the option of later selling at current market prices or higher. Millionaires look for properties they believe will appreciate at above average rates and then buy them at a discount. The discount is important because it represents built-in profit and equity. It's how you make your money going in. Successful investors label this their margin of safety and consider any investment without it to be speculative. Experienced investors assign a value to the work of acquiring an investment property either as a percentage or as a dollar value. For example, they may not acquire a property if they can't reasonably expect 20 to 30% or $20,000 to $30,000 for higher price points of built-in profit by buying at a discount. Others set the bar higher or lower depending on their personal financial goals. How much cash flow you seek works the same way. How much monthly cash flow do you need to achieve from a property to make it worth your while? For some, a single dollar is enough. They don't currently need the income or are focused on appreciation. Others won't accept less than 200 or more each month per rental unit. In the end, how much discount or cash flow you expect to achieve will be a factor in what you've experienced up to that point. Millionaire real estate investor Carlos Rivero discovered a formula for maximizing his rents by making his properties available to government rental assistance programs. Having found a way to achieve $500 a month in positive cash flow and having duplicated that success, 
he won't settle for anything less. The condition of the property is the fourth principal area of your criteria. See part two of the criteria worksheet on the facing page. Answers to the following questions can have a significant impact on your profit and loss. And this one is more detailed, right? So number four is condition, includes the need repairs, minor repairs, major repairs, structural, does it need to be demoed? Uh, is it construction, your roof walls, foundation, plumbing, water waste, wiring, insulation, heating, features, age, year built, beds, baths, living room, dining room, stories, square feet, ceilings, parking, kitchen, closets, Appliances, floor plan, patio deck, basement, attic, lightning, walls, laundry room, and number seven, amenities, an office or a player and exercise room, security system, furniture, furnishings, sprinkler system, workshop, studio, in-law suite. How's that an amenity? Jesus, that's not an amenity. I mean, to put that in another category, no in-law suite. Anyway, fireplaces, pool, hot tub, ceiling fans, window treatment, satellite dish, internet, this book... That gets tell it's a little old. It's not. I wouldn't call it an amenity, but maybe it is. You're right. Wi-Fi is right. We'd say Wi-Fi now. Sidewalk, energy efficient features. All right. Number one, how much cash we need to make any repairs. Number two, how long will it take to put the property in rentable or sellable condition. Number three, for big projects, how much risk is involved. Ideally, you want to find a discounted property that needs no repair, but that is quite rare. Generally, discounts come from fixing other people's problems. The seller doesn't have the cash, the time, or the inclination to handle the repairs him or herself and then put the property up for sale at a higher asking price. That's where the investor comes in. While we discuss this in detail in the section on the acquisitions model, a general rule is that the more repairs a property requires, the greater the discount is. Major cosmetic repairs, such as updating kitchens, bathrooms, and appliances, can net investors big returns if they're willing to tackle them. Structural repairs, such as fixing a bad foundation, bring the biggest discounts but also entail risk. When you start moving or adding walls, there are often unpleasant discoveries, finding dated or dangerous wiring or collateral damage, broken pipes that will cost you time and profits. We recommend that beginning investors start with properties that require only minor repairs unless they have significant construction experience. As part of their research for this book, I encourage the rest of our writing team to buy, improve, and sell an investment house using the millionaire models and worksheets. Through the seller disclosure and on-site inspections, Dave and Jay and our researchers, Heather, learned that the property had a bad foundation and needed major cosmetic repairs. Everything went by the numbers, and their cost estimates were within 2% of the actual expenses except for one big problem. During the foundation repairs, the main sewer line was broken about 20 feet under the slab. That amounted to a repair bill of over $10,000 as workers had to hammer through the slab to repair the line. That surprise expense added over a month to their holding costs and cut their profits substantially. But, and this is very important, because they were able to purchase the property at a deep discount by strictly following their models, they still earned a profit from their investment. Bob Guest, a local real estate inve- Bob Guest, a local millionaire real estate investor who advised them on the property, remarked that they had the good fortune of having their education paid for by the property. He was absolutely right. By following the models, they got a great education on condition criteria and made some money too. The fifth principal area of your criteria is construction. 
This is an important consideration for real estate investors because a property's construction often has a big impact on maintenance and expenses. Roofs have to be replaced, siding has to be repaired, and septic tanks need periodic treatment. These are all costs that will affect net cash flow if you plan to hold the property or your selling price if potential buyers are sensitive to these issues. Millionaire real estate investors Jimmy and Linda McKissick only buy homes with brick exteriors because they know that's what people in their Denton, Texas market want. They also understand that solid construction is more affordable to maintain over time. Features and amenities are the final principal areas of your criteria. Features include such basics as a number of stories, bathrooms, bedrooms, and living areas a property has. Consider important features in your target area to be a prerequisites for any property you purchase. If all the properties in your target location have two-car garages, your property should too. Uh, not in the book. Don't buy weird. I Weird is seldom good. Every once in a while, weird works out, but almost never. All right, back to the book. Anything less, you'll probably have to discount the rent or price. Amenities are the unexpected extras a property may have. You may not include any of them in your criteria, but you should always bear them in mind. A property that's missing a key feature may still be worthwhile if the amenities offset this deficit. For example, the two-car garage may have been converted to an extra bedroom that might be just as attractive to a prospective renter or buyer. Think of features as your minimums and amenities as your maximums. Completing the Millionaire Real Estate Investors Criteria Worksheet should give you a clear picture of the type of property you hope to find over time as you invest more and more. You may end up with several sets of real estate investment criteria. While you may be in the market primarily for single-family homes in a certain area of town, you may have another set of criteria for vacant lots you develop or even fixer-uppers you'd sell for a quick profit. The point of the criteria worksheet is that investors must always have a clear detailed understanding of their current targeted properties. You must know what you hope to find if you have any hope of finding it. Your All Properties Bulletin. Your completed criteria worksheet has a second equally important function beyond building your criteria. Once completed, the form provides a template for all your properties bulletin, all properties bulletin, APB. Your APB is a script. It's the basic description of the real estate investment for which you will be prospecting and marketing for, lead generating. For example, if you pulled out only the categories you completed, your APB might be something like this. I need your help. I'm looking for two-bedroom, two-bathroom duplexes priced between $125,000 and $150,000. Ideally, I'd like to be close to downtown off Opportunity Square or on the main bus line in Overlook Hills. I don't mind some cosmetic repairs, but nothing serious. I prefer brick construction if possible. It would be great if there was a privacy fence. Please let me know if you see any properties that meet that description. Not in the book. When you come out to the Renegade Joint Investor Meeting and people give up, get up and do their 20-second commercial, and they say they're looking for deals, they're looking for flips, they quite often don't do that. I try and get people to do that. The more specific you're asked, the better your chances of getting it. Back to the book. If you're communicating this to an investment partner, scout, or real estate agent, you might consider including your discount and cash flow criteria as that person most likely would be qualified to estimate those details when looking for opportunities to tell you about. Criteria are unique 
to each investor in each market. There's no secret formula or magic bolt that works for everyone everywhere. Real estate investing is a limited supply game within any price range because there are so many undervalued properties in any market at any time and competition can be fierce. Supply and demand always dictate price and value, and when too many investors seek the same kind of properties in the market, it can be very difficult to find opportunities that are not already spoken for. As a result, we've observed that millionaire real estate investors tend to specialize in a niche, a narrowly defined set of criteria that they can learn well and identify fast, the niche to get rich. They master a set of specific criteria and work them relentlessly. That's why there are investors who specialize in single-family, multifamily, land, new homes, rehabs, foreclosures, REOs. Um, REOs are bank-owned properties reclaimed by the market and many, many more. You also may need to identify a niche so that you can acquire properties within it without undue competition. With time and experience, you may even develop more than one criteria mode in which you are highly comp- competent. So you can switch gears whenever opportunities in one area become scarce. Question two, who can help me find them? Me. Wholesalers. All right, back to the book. Now that you know what you want, it's time to take the logical step in the lead generation model of the millionaire real estate investor. It's time to identify people who can connect you to the properties that meet your criteria. The chart below illustrates how the process works. This section of the lead generation model is about the who of lead generating for investment opportunities. Let's look at the chart quickly. And in the following section, we'll look at all the ways in which we can, can connect and with or contact them. You can divide the people you may want to contact to generate leads for real estate investment properties into three distinct groups, owners, intermediaries, and members of your leads network. Millionaires sometimes call them sellers, gatekeepers, and referrers. Together, these three groups represent all the people who can connect you to investment real estate. Chosen specifically on the basis of who they are or what they do professionally, they can represent the exact group you will want to lead generate to when looking for properties that meet your criteria. Owners, these are your sellers. They are the owners of the properties you might want to buy. Some have identified themselves as sellers or own real estate in an area in which you'd like to invest. If they are currently sellers, they're likely to be for sale by owner sellers, active active multiple listing service sellers, expired MLS sellers, or new home sellers, builders and developers. If they are owners who are not currently sellers but are likely to be at some point, they are likely to be owners who live out of town, absentee owners, owners who rent the property, landlords, or owners who just acquired the property in order to resell it quickly, wholesalers. The, there are also owners you'll target because they own property in an area that matches your criteria. Intermediaries, the gatekeepers. These are the individu- These are the individuals who through their professions are directly in contact with people who may need to sell their property quickly. This list includes attorneys specializing in niche areas of law, such as probate or divorce, bank or loan officers, and accountants. Gloria Fluger, Fluger, I hope I got your name right, my stepmother-in-law was able to parlay her job as a former executive assistant to a bank president and to a percentage of ownership in a real estate limited partnership by introducing a wealthy bank client to a group of real estate investors. 
That client became the group's most active and important member, and when they formed a new investment partnership, Gloria is given a piece of the process. Over that time, over time, that opportunity netted over $500,000. Don't underestimate the power of gatekeepers for you or for the gatekeeper. Leads network refers. These are the individuals whom you have met, whom you've entered into your lead generation database with whom you are in regular communication with throughout the year. Your goal is to have them refer investments to you. They can be divided into four categories. Resources, people whom you met who might send you leads. Allied resources, people whom you've met who can and probably will send you leads. Advocates, people whom you met who will absolutely send you leads. And core advocates, people who you've met and who are well-placed and absolutely will send you leads. Remember, just because you know people and they know you doesn't mean they all deserve equal status in your leads network. They don't. Your ultimate goal is advocacy, and advocacy isn't something that just happens. You make it happen. Through your ongoing communication with the people in your leads network, you soon discover who might and who will be an advocate for you. Core advocates are the people who are in situations that regularly generate investment leads and who absolutely will give them to you. In the real estate investment world, the people in your leads network are often called scouts or in some cases bird dogs because they are good at tracking down opportunities. Some scouts expect to be paid for the referrals. Others do not. The choice is always yours, so do what feels appropriate. Number three, how will I find the property or the people connected to it? So now you've defined your criteria, what you're looking for, and you've identified the key people who help you find those opportunities, who you will prospect and market to. The third step is to execute your prospecting and marketing in order to reach those people and find the opportunities you seek. This part of the lead generation model is about how is the how of lead generating for investment properties. A simple way to view lead generation is demonstrated in the chart on the following page, generating leads and moving people into your network circles. It is helpful to view people as being in one of two categories. They're either people you haven't met or people you have met, right? The people in the haven't met category consists of the general public at large or a targeted group you specifically identified as a good group on which to focus your lead generation. The people you have met are those in your leads network. The two methods you will use to generate leads from these groups are called prospecting and marketing. Prospecting is about out is about seeking opportunity. It's the process of personally calling and contacting targeted people you haven't met or people in your leads network to share your criteria and ask for investment leads. You're sharing your APB and asking if anyone has seen properties that match it. It's also the process of researching neighborhoods, papers, the internet, public databases for properties. But whether you're calling people, meeting them face-to-face, or researching alone, the challenge is that prospecting is always limited by the hours you can give it. This is why millionaires utilize marketing in their lead generation. Marketing is the opposite of prospecting. Instead of seeking opportunities, marketing is about attracting them. This is the process of putting up signs and billboards, mailing newsletters and postcards, and advertising in papers and periodicals. With marketing, you don't have to be present or even awake for lead generating to be working for you. It's truly a leveraged activity. 
It's important to remember that two fundamental forces, economic and personal, are constantly at work creating great real estate investment opportunities. Economic forces tend to affect the market as a whole. These factors include factors, these forces include factors such as changing interest rates, job growth or recession, overbuilding or under supply, and area revitalization. Personal forces are very specific to the owner and the property the owner represents. Personal forces, both positive and negative, include relocations, marriage or divorce, bankruptcy or good fortune, and even death or family growth. Millionaire real estate investors never focus on only one, but instead lead generate for both properties that meet the criteria and sellers who are motivated to sell. Here's how this plays out with your prospecting and marketing. With prospecting, you tend to be referred to or find properties that match your criteria. The next step is to locate the seller and see if he or she is motivated to sell at your terms. Marketing tends to work in the opposite direction. It tends to attract motivated sellers. The next necessary step for the investor is to inspect the seller's property to see if it matches his or her criteria. It it may sound oversimplified, but you generally be prospecting for properties and marketing for motivated sellers. While the prospecting and marketing options we use to illustrate this step of the model may appear overwhelming, the truth is that our list is far from comprehensive. Millionaire investors are usually unusually creative group of people and constantly innovate and improve on their lead generation methods. But none of the investors we interviewed felt obliged to attempt them all. Instead, most stuck to the three or four methods that they discovered work best for them. The point is to pick a couple methods and see if they work for you. The key is to get started. Over time and with experience, you'll get a good sense of what works best for you and in your market. When we surveyed our millionaire millionaire real estate investors, we asked for the top five ways they found real estate opportunities. The results are displayed in figure 40 below. Clearly, these successful investors relied on their leads network to send them opportunities. They built their leads network purposely and prospected and marketed to them relentlessly. You'll notice that we chose to break out real estate agents, even though they're actually one of the groups of people you'll be networking with, the number one category. They simply constitute too large of a subset this category to remain anonymous. Together, the two categories, networking and working with real estate agents, account for as much as 60% of the lead generation results our millionaire real estate investors achieved. When you add in driving or walking in the neighborhood, calling leads from newspapers or running ads in them and tracking foreclosure properties, you approach 86% of all leads been generated just five sources. These are the five we suggest you do. And the figure on page 198 is figure 40. How millionaire real estate investors find opportunity. Number one at the top, imagine that networking. 32% at the highest. Come out to Renegade Detroit Investors. Meetup. If you're not here, go to another meetup. If you don't like my meetup, guess what? There's like 15 more in this area at least in Southeast Michigan. If you live somewhere where they don't have a meetup, travel to where they have one. I moved to Detroit. Anyway, number two is real estate agents in the MLS. Guess who you know is a real estate agent? 28%. All right, driving and walking, often called driving for dollars or walking for dollars, right? That accounts for 10%. 
Uh, newspapers and ads, I think this would be internet now, right? 9% foreclosure listing, 7% for sale by owners, 4% internet database research, 3% targeted marking, 2% and other 5%. Build a database and work it. The engine that drives all successful long-term lead generation programs is a contact database. The contacts in it are the fuel. Your job as the investor is to fuel the engine. Put contacts in the database and drive your lead generation program forward. The interesting thing is that the quality of your results is more a matter of the quality of your fuel, contacts, than a product of your driving skills, prospecting, and marketing ability. What goes in has a direct effect on what comes out. The chart below, the lead generation database model, explains how you can use your database to generate leads. Your database will be built from two groups, people you haven't met and people you have met. If you haven't met them, they are targeted sellers who live in a geographical area in which you'd like to own property or a particular type of seller who may need to sell. For sale by owners, expires, landlords, etc., you record their contact information in your database and categorize them for easy reference local absentee mailing list, multiple property owner mailing list. Once they're in the database, you can contact them, prospect and market with appropriate messages to encourage them to consider calling you when they are ready to sell. If you have met these individuals, you record them in your database and categorize them in your work network, your leads network, or both. Then, as with your haven't met group, you will prospect and market to them with appropriate message to encourage them to consider contacting you if they know of a property or a seller who might constitute an investment opportunity. The Met Half Year Contact Database will include two basic kinds of contacts. All the people who help and advise you on investing, your work network, and all the people who might or will send you leads, your leads network. The network model is designed to help you build the first the lead generation model is designed to help you build the second. Over time, the two should become deeply entwined. Not in the book. For those who don't know, I set a challenge when I was going through Bold, which is like a Keller Williams production course. It's, it's got a fair amount of rah-rah, but otherwise it's pretty solid, um, very basic, but very solid uh, production course, right? And I set a goal to get a listing a day for 50 days, right? The only way I was able to do that was after years of building a network, I put out to my entire network what my goal was, right? Long story short, because of this amazing network I have, I ended up taking 51 listings in 50 days. So that's exactly what they're talking about. If I was to attempt to just go out and do it in one of the other ways. I don't know how many people I would have had to cold call. I don't know how many doors I would have had to knock. I had no clue, but I went in and I started calling everybody in my network. Start at the top, work my way down. Everybody I done a deal with, everybody I talked to, as many people that came to my meeting as possible. And I just told them what my goal is and asked them if they knew somebody who can help me out. I need listings, right? Now, in this case, I also offered to help them out, too. It wasn't just a one-way street. But that's what he's talking about here with the network model, right? So I went to my network for the leads I needed to take 51 listings in 50 days. That's what he's talking about. Back to the book. 
As the chart below, merging your work network with your leads network shows your goal as an investor is to achieve as much concentricity, concentricity as possible between your work network and your leads network. When you stop to think about it, this makes perfect sense. Who is better qualified to send you real estate investment opportunities that match your criteria than the people who work with you on those investments? The real estate agent you may have used to find your home or your first rental property will have a strong sense of your criteria and can be on the lookout for properties that match them. The contractor you employ to repair that property may know another owner who would rather sell than make similar repairs. As a general rule, the people in your work network will be well positioned to send you leads. After all, they're in the real estate investment business too. The individuals in your work network increasingly should make up the heart of your contact database, but along the way, you'll add other names as well. Your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers can send you leads if you include them consistently in your prospecting and marketing activities. You just have to educate them about your criteria. In the end, everyone you meet should know you're an investor, you'll tell them, and be added to this database. Once you have a target area, you can purchase mailing lists so you can contact large numbers of people by email with the click of a mouse or by mail using printed mailing labels. Your database powers these efforts and keeps you organized. Your database doesn't have to be an expensive software package. The vast majority of our millionaire real estate investors use Microsoft Outlook as their primary database. I use Follow a Boss and I'm kind of transitioning um, Keller Williams has this thing called command where they're trying to put everything in together. Looks very promising, very close to being implemented full time, but not quite good enough. So I'm using follow up bus, but there's lots of databases you could use, right? Back to the book. They use this simple, ubiquitous program to its fullest extent, adding detailed notes to their contacts and creating categories. Both are basic functions of the program to keep records of previous transactions and prioritize their contacts. Just under 10% of the investors were surveyed used more than one database. In almost every case, they used Outlook to build their databases and later, as their investing grew, incorporated one of the, uh, one of the powerful specialized contact management programs to help them track their prospecting and marketing efforts. The graph in the chart below details the databases our investors use. This is kind of old, but it says Outlook, Top Producer, um, ACT, Other, and None. Um, now would probably say Apple Mail, Gmail. I don't know if Top Producer's in the top. Follow-up Boss, Salesforce. Um, what else? What else is out there? Uh, Podio, that would be another one. There's a lot of them out there. You can go Google it. Back to the book, categorizing your contacts is vital. As people emerge as key lead generators in your leads network, you'll want to earmark their contact records to show that. I like to think of this as a game of concentric circles. See the chart on the facing page. You want to move people from the outside to the inside where they count the most. Remember, the four broad categories I recommended are resources, people who might send you leads, allied resources, people who can and probably will send you leads, advocates, people who absolutely will send you leads, and core advocates, people who are well-placed to find investment opportunities and who absolutely will send you leads. The process of converting these contacts from resource to allied resource and then advocates to core advocates is about your reputation. 
That's the simplest way to put it. Because you touch them regularly and systematically by meeting them face-to-face, by telephone, and by email and mail, and are always reminding them that you're an investor, they think of you when they come across the real estate investment opportunities. You're building a reputation as an investor and because you consistently share your criteria. They know what kind of properties you're looking for. You'll also be building your reputation by the way you respond to their referrals. You want to be known as an investor who respects the refer by being decisive prepared and, and prepared and who, when appropriate, rewards the refer. When someone sends you a lead that matches your criteria, show gratitude. This could be as simple as a handwritten note or a small gift or a substantive finder's fee or a piece of the action. Always remember that those individuals are moving you along the path to financial wealth and you should not look a gift horse in the mouth. Be grateful and express their the gratitude that is express that gratitude in no uncertain terms. You also have to be decisive and prepared. When you are handed an opportunity that matches your criteria, you need to be mentally and financially prepared to leap into action. There's no better way to discourage referrers than to sit on or squander the leads they give you. Build a reputation as an investor rewards leads and is great to work with. Prospect for properties. In the beginning, your lead generation program will be mainly prospecting driven. Later, it will be market marketing enhanced. In terms of learning the game and perfecting criteria, nothing replaces calling and meeting people, looking at properties, and doing the required research. Prospecting is a vital element in the learning curve of the millionaire real estate investor. Don't skip it. That's why I talk to people. This is why I still cold call. This is why I still door knock. This is why I still network and go to meetings. You can't just market. You got to prospect too. Back to the book. There are three basic ways to prospect for all real estate opportunities. Telephone, face-to-face, and research. The first two involve your database, and the last involves your eyes. A great place to start is telephone. Flip through your contacts in your database and pick a certain number of people to contact each week. Then set aside some time and start dialing. With your All Properties Bulletin at hand, introduce yourself as an investor and share your criteria. It's a simple seven-step process that begins with an introduction and ends with a thank you. See the chart below. It's a simple scripted conversation designed to build your reputation as an investor, deliver your criteria to your leads network, and generate leads. This conversation won't vary a lot even when you're meeting people face-to-face. For example, if you're walking in a neighborhood and spot someone working in the yard, you might introduce yourself as an investor interested in buying a property in that area and ask if that person knows anyone who might be planning to sell his or her home in the near future. You might leave people... Like that, your I buy real estate business card or jot down their contact information so you can follow up with a note or a phone call. On page 205, figure 46, where it says seven steps for sharing your all properties, your APB, your all properties bulletin. Number one, introduce yourself. Hello, this is Gary. I may not have mentioned this before, but I'm now investing in real estate. Two, share your criteria. Do you know anyone who needs to sell or have you seen any properties like? Share all your criteria. Number three, ask for help. I'd really appreciate if you call me, email me, text me, if you run across anything that matches that description. What's the number four? Update your database. What's the best way for me to reach you in the future? Number five, ask for referrals. Can you think of anyone else I should contact? Number six, 
express your gratitude. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Number seven, follow up with a note. Thanks again for taking time out of your schedule to speak with me the other day. I really appreciate your help. All right, back to the book. This is a numbers game, and the majority of these conversations will not amount to much. But each time you personally engage someone and share your goals, you're making contact and planting a seed for potential real estate opportunity leads in the future. Time makes this pay off. You never know who your core advocates will be until they announce themselves. And this usually happens over time, not immediately. The individual you meet outside his or her home may be an attorney who serves as a trustee for bank foreclosures. That person may be a courthouse clerk with access to valuable information, or that person may be an investor like you who would love to find a way to marry strengths and work together someday. You never know, so you never stop. One unbelievable opportunity I missed happened right next door to me. Years ago, right after we were married, our next-door neighbor's house was sold for tax liens on the courthouse steps. The buyer got it for a song and later resold it for a huge profit. My neighbor never told me about his troubles because even though he knew I was in real estate, he didn't know I was an investor. The lesson, tell everyone you know or meet because a tremendous opportunity could be right or under your nose. The final method of prospecting is research, in which you search information sources for investment opportunities. These include local newspaper, real estate listings, we'd say Craigslist now, internet sites, public property records at the local courthouse. With the help of a real estate agent, you could probably search your local MLS online. You should have a complete and detailed inventory of properties on the market. You may be able to get automated email alerts to let you know when properties that meet your criteria come on the market in your target area. The courthouse is another huge potential source for foreclosure property opportunities. There is a mini industry of paid information providers who supply detailed listings for upcoming foreclosure properties. Seek them out in the areas where you might want to invest. Prospecting is a powerful way to find investment opportunities since it directly involves you and your growing expertise. The more you do, the better you get. Soon in conversations and your research, you'll start recognizing important clues that others might miss and pursue them. Interestingly, prospecting's greatest benefits that it involves you is also its Achilles heel. Your prospecting efforts will always be limited in that there are limits to the amount of time and energy you are able and willing to give up for them. Nevertheless, prospecting can put you on the path to prosperity, especially when you're prospecting within your well-placed leads network. It is the work that must be done if you are to reach your investment goals. Market for Sellers One of the most important lessons I've learned in the business is that most big businesses happen as a result of big lead generation. That means that successful business persons leave no method out unless they have to. They both prospect and market for leads. There are limits to your reach with prospecting, but that does not exist with marketing. Prospecting is something you do. Marketing is something you unleash. Once you've set it loose, it works without your having to be there to drive and power it. When you put it up a sign on the side of a busy thoroughfare or tack a flyer to a pole, it does lead generating 24 hours a day, relaying your message to everyone who drives past. Prospecting stops when you do, but marketing lives on and on. A great example of the awesome mar- power marketing can unleash is Homevestors of America Incorporated, a real estate investing franchise company. Ken D'Angelo was a real estate investor in Dallas, Texas, who specialized in fixing and flipping properties. He had a well-proven strategy 
1995, he actually and amazingly flipped over 170 properties. That was when he knew he was on to something significant and that it was time to take his model nationwide. The next year, D'Angelo parlayed his unique, simple, and highly effective real estate and business marketing program, bright yellow billboards that read, We Buy Ugly Homes and Ugly is Okay, into the top 100 franchise businesses. His great little investing business became a great big investing business because of great marketing that really worked. What D'Angelo understood was that to find big financial success through investing in real estate, he would have to have a big lead generating program. Many new and even experienced investors missed this point. For some reason, they overlook marketing as a way to find real estate investment opportunities. Millionaires don't overlook and neither should you. And the world of real estate investing marketing is all about attracting motivated sellers. It's a game of problems and solutions like the We Buy Ugly Homes billboards. You want your marketing to announce to the world that you're an investor and prepared to solve somebody's problem. People have situations that sometimes translate into a need to sell their property and sell it quickly. Maybe the property is inherited and needs more repairs than the owner wants to deal with. Maybe the owner's job or family situation has changed and he needs to move quickly to a larger or smaller home. The owner's problem could arise from a positive circumstance such as a new job opportunity in another town or negative circumstance such as a company going out of business that has left her short on cash. Regardless of the circumstances, you must realize that you are not the cause of those situations. You are not the problem. You do, however, represent a possible solution if the seller is willing and able to meet your terms. Millionaire real estate investor Barbara Matson shared a story that illustrates this point. A gentleman she had never met came to her one day and asked her to take over six properties he owned. They were on the verge of foreclosure. He had approached other real estate professionals, but they had passed on the opportunity. He wanted to keep his credit and was at the end of his choices. Barbara, unlike the others, was thinking like an investor and saw an opportunity for a win-win deal. She agreed to take over the properties and and assume responsibility for the debt and payments by using a simple quick claim deed. Six weeks later, Barbara sold the properties for a net profit of $85,000, and although the seller only wanted to avoid foreclosure and ask for no money, Barbara gave him $15,000 in addition to saving his credit. Here was an individual with nowhere else to turn who was helped by a real estate investor who cared enough to help and who understood how to solve people's real estate problems. He won. She won. Everyone won. Contrary to what some people think, this type of this type of circumstance is not a predator or prey situation. And I don't believe in or advocate for dishonest dishonesty or deception of any kind to anyone. You want to help, but you're an investor. And by definition, your goal is to remove risk from the transaction. You have to get an appropriate discount or terms on the property or you can't do the deal. I even encourage you to let the seller know you're an investor and do not plan to live in the property. It's an investment. Although you'd love to help out, it must meet your strict criteria and terms. The rest is up to the seller. You have plenty to offer in this type of situation. You are a willing and reliable buyer who's prepared to act quickly and solve the problem. The solution you offer may not be exactly what the seller wants, but it may be the best option he or she has. The rule of thumb for marketing is that you should always send your message about being a solution to other people's property problems. There are many ways to get the word out. We talked to investors who did massive targeted mailings to subdivisions and neighborhoods. 
Others advertised in newspapers and real estate journals. Some distributed flyers, put up signs and billboards, or handed out their real estate investor business cards everywhere they went. A few obtained courthouse or publicly available lists of out-of-town property owners, local landlords, or even, in one case, minority owners and companies that held real estate. However, no matter which approach was used, these groups were all sent carefully tailored messages designed to announce a solution to their potential problems and attract motivated sellers. For example, out-of-town business owners were sent messages that highlighted the problems of managing a property long distance, such as screening renters, managing maintenance contractors, and dealing with routine upkeep. All of those things can present challenges to out-of-town owners. If your marketing represents you as someone who can solve this problem, maybe two or three of every hundred people you mail to inquire about your terms. That's when the opportunity to make a deal shows up. Remember to keep the message straightforward and simple. You buy properties, pay cash, and can close quickly. These are the three, thing, three things someone with a property problem hopes to find. A quick cash solution to his or her troubles. By the way, when investors advertise that they pay cash, they aren't talking about a suitcase of money. They mean they have a set up lines of credit and quick private financing so that in a matter of days or even hours, they can have a cashier check ready for closing. That's what they mean when they say they'll pay cash for properties. It's about how quickly you can supply good, good as cash funds to pay for the property. And we are at two hours and 23 minutes. So I think for right now, I'm going to end on page 210 and we will pick this back up whenever the fuck I get to it. I have another podcast in the can I'm going to release, but I'm going to release this one first. So yeah, that's what we're going to do. So I'm ending on page 210 and next time we're going to start on page 211 of the millionaire real estate investor. Whew. Man, we did some good work today, huh? hope that sounded as good as I thought it did. All right. I think, let's see, how much do I have? It'll probably be two or three more podcasts before I get to the, the rest of this book. How many pages we got? We got, we're at 211 and I got to read to what, at least a hundred. Yeah. I got at least a hundred more to go. Like 150. Yeah. It might be three more. We're going to get there. It's only taken me years. All right. First off, Thanks for listening to me angry read this book to you. I hope you you have bought the book and you're reading it along with me. And also, just so nobody thinks we're trying to fuck Gary Keller or, or Jay Papasan or Dave Jenkins or whoever published this book, McGraw-Hill Companies, go buy the audio book too. So go to Amazon, buy the real book, go buy the audio book, listen to it. You can listen to someone other than me, read it. But what do you think? How's it coming along? I like it. This is the book I wish I would have read years ago, which is one of the reasons why I'm reading it to you guys right now. So I want to thank everybody for listening today. I do really appreciate your attention. I'm glad you enjoy these uh, Jeremy Burgess Angry Read books. This one, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. If you liked and enjoyed this podcast, do me a favor, rate and review on iTunes. You can also share the podcast with others. You can hire me to list and sell your house. Um, also, we have buyer's agents and we work with wholesalers. We can help you find um, either a personal residence, like a regular retail uh, agent, only good, 
Um, or even if you're an investor looking for investment deals, all right? You can refer buyers and sellers to me. See what I'm doing right there? We were just talking about that. Or you can send me your wholesale deals. I don't want to be more specific than that because I have a database of 2,000 people. So I'm trying to find a lot of people houses. So if you ever want to attend any of the local meetings or just check out the website, go to renegadedetroit.com. It's searchable. And they got hundreds of podcasts up there. Meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. You can always send me an email, Jeremy at RenegadeDetroit.com or Jeremy at RenegadeRealtyGroup.com. Both go to me, 313-600-2133. Shout out to my boy, Joe Randall. Mortgages by Joe Randall, 2Ls.com for buying this beautiful podcast table for Renegade Detroit Investors. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you. Check them out. And as I wrap this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know. Many distractions. Maybe you've made mistakes. You've got some poisonous-ass people. Maybe you were that piece of shit, you know, bad habits, and you got to turn your shit around, get right with your 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 work and your family. You know what? Good. Pick one thing. Stick with it and do something every day that gets you close to your goals, even if it's one step, all right? I want to thank you for listening to the podcast, and I appreciate your attention. And as always, until the next podcast or next meeting, crush it.